If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, in which we explore the past, present and future of science fiction. Find it at 101sf.blogspot.com and head over to YouTube to find my Bradbury 101 series, in which I look at Ray's books and movies. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome once again to Bradbury 100. Now this will be the last of the regular series of the podcast, although it may return every now and again in the future. But because this is the last normal episode, I wanted to talk about Ray Bradbury's influence and his legacy. And I'm very pleased to have with me a creative writer of science fiction who is also a scholar who teaches and researches aspects of science fiction, and that's Howard V. Hendricks. But first, I'd like to take you right back to the beginning of this series, where I talked about the common perception that Ray Bradbury is a science fiction writer. If that is the perception, is that where his legacy will lie? In John Eller's new book, Bradbury Beyond Apollo, he talks about Bradbury's legacy as a novelist, but also his legacy as a visionary. Bradbury saw the future and sometimes he warned us about it, especially in his fiction. But often he inspired us by talking about going to other worlds. And remarkably, for a non-technical writer, Bradbury was arguably the most inspirational and influential of all the science fiction writers in the sense of inspiring real scientists and engineers. In the science fiction field, there's long been a tendency to categorise writers as hard SF or soft SF. Hard SF refers to science fiction which rigorously bases the fiction on science or forefronts the scientific method. Soft SF, on the other hand, is generally science fiction which appears to be science fiction but which doesn't really bother itself too much with scientific explanations. And Bradbury would fit this latter definition, in contrast to some of his well-known peers, authors of the same generation as him, such as Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, Robert Heinlein. Now that other biographer of Bradbury, Sam Weller, at the end of his book, The Bradbury Chronicles, talks about Bradbury's impact like this. He says, His impact was widespread. From a crater on the moon, to a classroom in Tokyo to an instantly recognisable amusement park rising out of the Florida swampland, to a small park in Waukegan, Illinois, named in 1990 Ray Bradbury Park. He was everywhere. And even if he wouldn't be a part of the future he so eloquently envisioned, he was all around us. Now notice that both Ella and 
Weller talk not just in terms of an author and his books. They're talking about things Bradbury did or influenced beyond the world of literature. And why that matters is quite simple. Bradbury presented himself for at least 50 years as some sort of spokesman for the space age and for a bright future, reinforcing the persistent idea that he was a science fiction writer, even to people who never read a thing that he wrote. It was the writing that got him to that position, but once in that position, he became known even to non-readers. So there is one good reason that his name will continue to be recognised in the future, one aspect of his legacy. Now, since Ray died eight years ago, there have been more books written about him. Uh, John Eller's books, of course. There was also a book edited by Gloria Macmillan called Orbiting Ray Bradbury's Mars, which looked at Bradbury and his work from all sorts of different directions. And Macmillan wrote, We hope this kaleidoscopic view of a fascinating writer will help others to use their potential and know that it is all right to be a person who likes libraries, likes to read, and most importantly, likes to write. And that is a second aspect, I think, of Bradbury's legacy. He often wrote and spoke about the importance of literacy and libraries, and there are several libraries which are dedicated in his name, or have a room named after him, or even have a statue outside. And then the British scholar David Seed wrote a really good study of Bradbury's work for a book series called Modern Masters of Science Fiction. And this one might well turn out to be the most enduring study of Bradbury, although it is mostly limited to just the science fiction works. By the way, David was my long-suffering PhD supervisor. He made rapid progress writing his book while I crawled along in the slow lane writing my thesis on Bradbury. Anyway, David's concluding remarks say, It is difficult to overstate Bradbury's historical importance. He had a formative influence on a whole generation of SF writers who continue to produce volumes of tribute stories, and his works are at last gaining recognition for their narration of speculative themes through sophisticated scenic methods. So there is a third dimension to Bradbury's legacy, the influence Bradbury had on the succeeding generation of writers, or generations of writers. There was one of these tribute volumes published during Bradbury's lifetime, edited by William F. Nolan and Martin H. Greenberg, and titled The Bradbury Chronicles. By the way, The Bradbury Chronicles, that's a very overused title. You've got this tribute book, you've got Sam Weller's biography, there's a 1970s study by George Slusser, loads of magazine articles called The Bradbury Chronicles. Oh, and The Bradbury Chronicles was also Ray's original title for what became the Ray Bradbury Theatre TV series. Anyway, back to the tribute book, The Bradbury Chronicles. That book mostly featured writers of what we would now consider an older generation, a few of them actually contemporaries of Ray, but many of them younger than him. Uh, let's see, the contributors included Ed Gorman, 
Charles Al Grant, Chad Oliver, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough, uh, Charles Beaumont, Richard Matheson and Richard C. Matheson, uh, Gregory Benford, F. Paul Wilson, Robert Sheckley. And then after Ray died, Sam Weller and Mort Castle edited Shadow Show, another tribute volume, but it's here that we most clearly see the following generation, the authors who very clearly grew up in Ray's long shadow. Margaret Atwood, Harlan Ellison, Neil Gaiman, uh, Kelly Link, Joe Hill, Alice Hoffman, Robert McCammon, Audrey Niffenegger, Ramsey Campbell. Comparing the two tribute volumes, one published in the 1980s and one in the 2010s, maybe the most striking thing is the overall breadth of contributors. Yes, there are some straightforward science fiction writers, but most contributors to both of these volumes span fantasy, horror and crime fiction, as well as SF. There's also one other very striking difference between the two, in that the later volume has a lot more female writers than the earlier one had. Now, I, I don't know whether this indicates that more women writers are declaring an influence from Bradbury now than before, or whether it maybe reflects a greater determination from the editors to get a better gender balance. I don't know. The other female writers in Shadow Show, by the way, are Jacqueline Mitchard, Bonnie Jo Campbell and Julia Keller. Whatever the reason for this, it's reassuring to know that Bradbury has influenced a wide range of writers. One possible threat to Bradbury's literary legacy, if you can call it a threat, is that science fiction writers especially can fall out of favour or just disappear from view if the fictional world they create is overtaken by the real world, overtaken by events. After all, who wants to read a book whose predictions are already out of date? And that has been a concern some people have voiced about Bradbury's best-known work, Fahrenheit 451. It's about book burning, so what happens when we live in a world where books have been replaced by e-books? Does Fahrenheit lose its relevance? Well, I think the answer is a flat no. Fahrenheit does not lose its relevance. Um, I remember a similar superficial concern being voiced about George Orwell's 1984, back in the early 80s. Orwell was writing about the future, people said, so what happens when that future has come and gone? Well, of course, 1984 has come and gone, but Orwell's novel is still with us. And of course, Orwell wasn't really writing about the future. He was writing about a future, but the fact that he chose to label it 1984 was really rather unimportant. He could have called it anything. In many ways, he was writing about the times in which he was writing, the late 1940s. He was inspired by wartime and post-war shortages, um, alliances of convenience, how the Soviet Union could be our ally one day and our enemy the next, and he was also writing in part about his experience of working for that ultimate bureaucracy, the BBC. But the things Orwell warned us about are the things we are living through today. Fake news, uh, attempts to control the populace by controlling the news agenda, and that sort of thing. 
And as for Fahrenheit 451, well, firstly, we don't live in a world of e-books. The first wave of e-books has come and gone, and physical books continue to sell and to exist, especially hardcovers. But even if we did live in a world of e-books, it doesn't matter. Because Fahrenheit isn't about burning books. That's the metaphor. That's the thing that makes Bradbury's novel exciting and inspiring. Flames are simultaneously intriguing and frightening. But what Fahrenheit is about are the things that challenge literacy. Television, obsession with trivia, drug abuse, censorship, low culture versus high culture. And what saves the threatened civilization in Fahrenheit 451 is a return to storytelling and the oral tradition, not physical books. While it's true that many science fiction books have fallen by the wayside when their projected world has become an irrelevance, that hasn't happened with Fahrenheit. It's not a work of hard SF, so the specifics of any technology just aren't too relevant. It's not seeking to predict an actual future. It's a warning. And the warning can remain especially relevant when the detailing of the science underpinning it is left deliberately vague. Or, as I prefer to put it, when the detailing of the science underpinning it is largely metaphorical. So there's no threat there to Bradbury's legacy, I don't think. This talk of legacy is the reason that, as my guest on the last of these regular episodes of Bradbury 100, I wanted to speak to Howard Hendricks. He is a science fiction writer himself, one who is both lyrically creative and conscious of science, and he is a scholar of science fiction. And as you will hear, he's also very widely read across the whole canon of English and American literature. So now let's meet... Howard V. Hendricks. Joining me today on Bradbury 100 is writer and scholar Howard V. Hendricks. Howard has written many novels and science fiction stories, as well as poetry and essays, and he's the editor of a number of non-fiction works, including Visions of Mars, a collection of essays that I contributed to. Howard, welcome to Bradbury 100. I'm happy to be here, Phil. Good, good of you to have me on. When people review your science fiction stories, I've noticed they tend to categorise you as a hard science fiction writer. Is that how you see yourself? For a long time, I didn't. In some ways, I think maybe this feel got, just got softer. I don't know. But it, it, my, the first 20 years of my career from about 1985 to 2005, I didn't think of myself as a hard SF kind of guy. I thought of my work as a sort of literary SF, not really hard engineering nuts and bolts. It took me a long time to realise that one could be hard SF, you know, try to play the game within the constraints of, of plausible science and, and still be very literary. Uh, that was important to me. Uh, but I had made this artificial division in my head. And the way it became clearest to me was when, gosh, this was years ago now, back in the aughts, the Science Fiction Museum and Hall of Fame was opening in Seattle, Washington. And I was a guest up there and it so happened that I was taking the shuttle bus from the hotel to the venue for the, for the Science Fiction Museum and Hall of Fame. I was taking the bus and I got talking to Stan Schmidt, you know, longtime editor of Analog. 
we got talking and we shared some similarities. I live up in the Ponderosa pine forests of California. He lives up in the pine forests of the Hudson River Valley. We got talking and he said, you need to submit something to me. And I hadn't, I hadn't submitted anything to analog since the late 1970s. I collected some of my first rejection slips there and I thought, oh, I'm too artsy fartsy. They'll never publish me. But Stan said, you need to send me something. And I thought, oh, well, okay, okay. And I, I kept putting it off. And I'd see him at conventions occasionally and said, when are you going to send me something? When are you going to send me something? And so uh, I said, well, you know, I, I always thought analog was too hard a market for me. And he said, I'm the editor. Let me decide what I want to publish. Don't preempt it. And so I started sending him stories. And uh, lo and behold, he started publishing my work regularly. And they've been a very good market for me. But for the space of over 20 years, I iced myself out of that market because I just had this artificial division in my head that said, no, analog's too hard SF, you know, they're, they're too nuts and bolts, they won't publish my work. And I was wrong, and I am kicking myself like mad, have been for years. But uh, actually, my most recent collection of short stories, The Girls with Kaleidoscope Eyes, Analog Stories for a Digital Age, they were all published in analog except for one story, which was uh, published in an anthology from Tor called Carbide Tipped Pens, and it was co-edited by Ben Bova, who was a longtime editor of Analog, so Analog Stories works there. But that came out in 2019, and basically it was most of my short fiction, pretty much all of my uh, literary production, not quite all, but a lot of it, from between 2007 and 2017, it's sort of a 10-year retrospective. And it's 100,000 words of short fiction. There are a couple of novellas, uh, some novelettes, and a bunch of short stories. So I was very happy when that came out. And uh, uh, Analog served as a wonderful venue for me. And so if, I, if people want to call me hard SF, you go right ahead. I have now learned that it doesn't have to be a pejorative term and that I can actually live up to it. And one way in which it, it has always been true is I do my research. I've subscribe to magazines like MIT Technology Review and Scientific America, of course, forever. And uh, I do a lot of research and I want the worlds that I am creating, and they're mostly near future, I want them to be plausible, you know, just little tweaks. And one of the best things that a, a scientist can say to me, and this has happened, is I, I really liked your novel. I really liked your story. I couldn't tell where the real science ended and the rubber science began. And that is the probably the highest compliment you can give someone who is trying to do uh, science fiction with the net, with the, you know, the, the referencing a quote by Robert Frost, who complained that free verse was poetry, playing tennis without the net. I like having that net. I like having the restriction and the constraint, really, of doing it near future and plausibly. And that's mainly where I've worked, fairly near future SF and as scientifically plausible as I can pull out. So that answer, I think that answers your question. It does. That's quite fascinating to hear, actually. I wouldn't normally compare your writing to Ray Bradbury's writing, although we might talk about that later. But one of the things that fascinates me about Bradbury's writing process is that he was very afraid of trying to write to a set of rules. On his typewriter, he had a, a little thing that said, don't think. And he believed very much in just letting things pour out 
he would come back later and apply logic to what he had written, but at the time of typing the words on the page, he didn't want any kind of restrictions. How, how does that compare well, to your process? When I've taught creative writing classes, I often speak about the fact that I really think the writing process is two-brained. It's generative, you crank stuff out, and that's what Ray was talking about. And then it's editorial, you go back and you shape it. There's an old, I think it's a Norse idea, that a mother bear had to lick the bear after it was born into shape, lick it into shape. All right, I've always loved that idea. And in a way, going back and editing is licking the bear cub into shape. So I would agree with, to some degree, that there is that generative side and there is that editorial side, the editor and the generator. Now, I know that Bradbury often spoke of himself as a fantasy writer, but he does some great science fiction. Last fall, I was teaching an American Lit course, and I was happy to see that the anthology, since the last time I had used it, had gotten in a lot more science fiction writers. There was Bradbury. There was a kind of uh, science fictionally thing by Atwood. Uh, there was Octavia Butler. There was William Gibson. And I taught Bradbury's The Belt, a story I hadn't read in many years. And I'm like, my God, this thing is so predictive. It basically has a smart house. It has AI, virtual reality, before anybody ever talked about that. And I know he was going from tropes and working uh, from wherever he was coming from, but it is so fascinatingly science fictional. And I would argue that if you look at a novel like Fahrenheit 451, that's a very strongly science fictional novel. I would say it's probably his most science fictional work. Not Martian Chronicles. Martian Chronicles is a different story. He, he thought he was less of a hard SF writer than he actually was. He did have those SF elements. And I thought I was more of a literary writer, perhaps, than I am. So there you go. I noticed in one interview you mentioned Arthur C. Clarke, who is also thought of as a hard SF writer. And you said something to the effect that even though Clarke was an atheist, he seemed quite fascinated by religious themes or themes of transcendence. Do you, do you think that's an important thread in science fiction? And is that part of your own fiction as well? Yes and yes. Clark was an interesting cat. I think that push for transcendence is very much a part of science fiction in general. You can be glib and say, oh, science fiction is religion with robots, but it's a lot deeper than that. Clark believed that eventually religion and science would merge and become indistinguishable. That word, indistinguishable, is a big one for Clark in this context. He famously said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. In my story, Red Rover, Red Rover, uh, you'll find the sentence, and I'm doing my riff on Clark, any sufficiently improbable natural event is indistinguishable from a supernatural event. Play with that sometimes. Or sufficiently advanced science is indistinguishable from divinity in the sense of theology. Or ordinary foresight and planning by members of a sufficiently long-lived species is indistinguishable from divine foreknowledge and final cause for members of a sufficiently short-lived species. Now, I'm going to have to think about that one for a while. It popped into my head. I wrote it down, and I am not where I'm going to use it yet. But it, it'll be there someplace sometimes it's hard for us and this is very forward thinking of Clark uh, it's hard for us because we see science and religion as so polarized so antagonistic to each other and there are elements of it I just had a piece in Academe which is the publication of the American Association of University Professors and it's called Apprehensions Comprehensions and SARS-CoV-2 it's online it'll also be out in the print version of the magazine later this year and one of the things I talked about was the difference between 
accuracy and certainty. And science is about accuracy, whereas religion is about certainty. Now, we tend to think that as we become more accurate, we become more certain. And, and that's true to a certain extent. But after a certain sort of Heisenbergian point, accuracy and certainty become very different things and in a way become inversely proportional to each other. It's kind of a science fictional idea, but hey, they published it in academia. I was a happy man. And so what, what Clark was saying is that ultimately beyond that, distinction between science being about accuracy and religion being about certainty, there will come a time when the two are one. And that comes up in a number of his nonfiction writings, not just in his science fiction. He, he was an atheist, but he was fascinated by why people, why human beings have an impulse toward religion. And like a good scientist, he wanted to know the reason why. He wanted to look at that, not just dismiss it out of hand. You know, what is it about religion that fills a void in human beings. And he was looking for trying to figure out in a rational way why religion has such a strong appeal. Eventually he thought, as I said, that science and religion would become indistinguishable. They would become the same thing. Speaking of sort of recurring themes and traditions and tropes and so on, um, one of the things I got from the book Visions of Mars and the conference that it was inspired by mm -hmm. is that science fiction very much builds on what went before. So you get people like Kim Stanley Robinson, who writes quite realistically about transforming Mars into a planet we could live on, in all seriousness, crediting Bradbury, who wrote poetically about Mars, as uh, a serious influence. What do you think the role is of these sort of traditions and recurring tropes? To my mind, traditions and tropes are there for the story. What's intriguing is also how they often also prove relevant for the science. Science and story are different ways of knowing, but they overlap a lot. I'll give you an example. If you look at Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth or Burroughs' Pellucidar books, in those works, part of the fundamental premise is that by going down into the earth, one also goes back in time, which is why in these books you have creatures like various dinosaurs extinct in our world still living in those worlds underground. It's the idea of going back through geological strata and coming into the past literally. So you have the dueling dinosaurs in Vern, the primitive peoples in Burroughs. What's strange is that the dig down to find the past persisting idea, which sort of played with a scientific idea of geological strata, it's actually turning out to be true uh, on the micro scale, literally true. I've been doing a lot of research about this for a novel, the one I'm working on. And we moved from Darwin's idea that life began in a warm pool, a warm puddle. We've now moved down more generally to hydrothermal vents as the place where life began. But now, if you read the most cutting-edge stuff, there's a question of whether the start of life really begins in the deep subsurface of the crust. The argument that's increasingly being made is if you have water, if you have the right kind of rocks and thermodynamic equilibrium, some sort of source of energy, radiolytic use of hydrogen, say, that life could very well have developed, not gone from the outside in, but from the inside out. And I read that and I went, wow, that's really bizarre. It's a fascinating idea. And there's a lot of research being done in it. The microorganisms of the deep subsurface are, according to current science, probably closer to the initial things that made the shift from non-living to living than anything else. And they're living in these deep oligotrophic zones such that, and I love this, this is just so bizarre. 
that they may only replicate once every hundred million years. They live so slow. And that's fascinating because that raises questions for these folks. These things cannot be too far from their original versions. They cannot have changed that much. They, you know, if, if life goes back, say, 3.5 billion years, that means that if you have organisms that, to use a phrase from a poem by Thomas Hardy, the deadest things alive enough to have the strength to die, okay, which is from a poem called Neutral Tones. It's actually a description of a, a woman's smile in a landscape. But it's wonderful for, if you use that idea for these, this sort of slow, deep surface life, which is just barely, barely, barely alive. You can even think of it in terms of viruses, for instance. They're the deadest things alive enough to have the strength to die, and they also have the strength to kill, which is intriguing. But if you look at these very slowly replicating, just barely living things, in the entire space of, since the origin of life, we put it at 3.5 billion years, and these things only replicate once every 100 million years, they've only replicated 35 times, okay? That, that's barely enough to get rocking with evolution. I mean, it's just fascinating stuff. And so being able to track that down is a lot of fun. They barely changed at all since the crust cooled and liquid water was able to persist. So the idea that traveling deep into the earth is also traveling back in time is real, at least as far as the current theories are about these early living things are concerned. But there's another one. I talked to you about this a little bit earlier in terms of technology and trope, the Velt. As I said, I retaught it last year, hadn't read it in a long time. And I was so struck by how contemporary and how relevant it seemed. As I mentioned, smart homes, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, all of those things just sort of pop up. And I know that Bradbury was essentially working from looking at television and writing at large, okay? But it does so many, many interesting things. I taught it in the same course where I taught it, when another story I hadn't read in a while, William Gibson's The Gernsback Continuum. And The Gernsback Continuum was, oddly enough, it's a story written more recently than Bradbury's. But because of its specificity, it ends up being more dated than Bradbury's. Bradbury's story was written 30 years before Gernsback Continuum. And I love Gibson's work. But this was the quirkiest thing to be reading that story by Gibson and realizing that so much of the tech that gets talked about there, it, it, it just doesn't work anymore. You know, people are sending telegrams. They're getting checks, not via the mail, but being wired money. And it's, there's so much stuff that is so rooted in the early 1980s. And what's quirky about the Bradbury piece is its future is much more based on sort of tropes, sort of various psychological ideas. And yet, because it is just that crazy work of the imagination, that generative side, and, it, and people say, well, it's kind of like fantasy. No, it's, it's remarkably predictive. I know the business of science fiction is not to predict per se, but it's a remarkably predictive story. And what drove that was this whole idea of these various tropes, these various ideas, these various patterns that come up in the story. And that led him to push on the technology a little bit. In that sense, I, I want to point out the idea that tropes, you can't separate the tech in science fiction ultimately from the tropes. They wrap around each other. They anastomose around each other. It's fascinating to me. It's a, it's a really interesting question. 
I know, as I mentioned before, Bradbury really did not consider himself in many ways a science fiction writer. And yet he profoundly changed the genre of science fiction. In one of the essays in Visions of Mars, there's a discussion of the fact that although Bradbury in some ways considered himself more of a fantasist, he profoundly affected science fiction. He shaped a lot of what we think of as science fiction. He was kind of hard to pin down and categorize. And that's wonderful. That's a good thing. You indicated earlier that um, The Martian Chronicles isn't science fiction. How do you think that book holds up today? And if it isn't science fiction, what is it for you? Well, I would say that The Martian Chronicles persists and will persist, not for its science, but for its lyricism, the beauty of its language and the wildness of its ideas. That's why people continue to read it. It speaks human truths, even if not hard science fictional ones. It's a romantic composite novel. If I had to pin it down, that's what I'd call it. Sort of a lot of short stories on a similar theme plop together. And I think that's why I'm so fascinated by it. But again, Bradbury is more of an SF writer than he lets on. You can look at that, a lot of the stories and say, oh, that's Sherwood Anderson, that's Melville, that's Poe. Usher too, okay, which is a story in that, which is really ref- strongly references Poe. And it, it, it really does tend to emphasize Bradbury as an American writer, but it's so wildly imaginative and uses Mars as its space. I think of the last story, the last picnic of the world, and you know, they were now Martians. That's wonderful stuff. Can you remember the first Bradbury that you ever read? I can tell you exactly what it was. It was Kaleidoscope, which I love. It begins with disaster. You have a, a spaceship being ripped open like a fish, gutted like a fish, and all the all the crew members are cast away, and there's this diaspora. Everybody's shipped off. Everybody disappears in all these different ways. And the last image of that, spoiler, it's telling this whole story from the point of view of one of the astronauts who's been through this disaster, and he realizes that, oh, I'm going to become a shooting star. I'm going to pass through the Earth's atmosphere as a shooting star then the point of view shifts radically right at the end. And you have this little boy and his mother walking along a road in the countryside. And look, mommy, it's a shooting star. And she says, make a wish, make a wish. And I just love that. I read that and went, wow, that is just too cool. And I I can tell you where I first encountered it too. Uh, Bradbury was a big fan of libraries. And when I was a kid, that was, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. That was where my access to books came from. And I remember reading so many of Bradbury's stories in in library collections of Illustrated Man or R is for Rocket, S is for Space. And sometimes they would overlap and repeat the same stories, but that that was very, very important to me. Bradbury's lyricism has had a profound effect on how I think of myself as a writer, even though I'm doing the more hard SF stuff. But those moments of beauty, they're just the mad beauty of those stories. And it's just the, the, the wild imaginative ideas in, in a book like Martian Chronicles, The Bee Gun, and the canal, the lush canal world, and all this wonderful, wild stuff. The kaleidoscope, is uh, that's another transcendent story. Sure. I guess you could say it is, because the main character is apotheosized as a star at the end. I don't know. I don't know whether 
burning up in the atmosphere is, is quite, quite the kind of transcendence I want. But yeah, he is. He is apotheosized uh, at the end of the story. He sees one of the other astronauts who's in this sort of little gathering of stars and that's the kaleidoscope. Oh, it's wonderful stuff. And it's, it's not just a reference to the Beatles that my latest collection of short stories is called The Girls with Kaleidoscope Eyes. Uh, it's also an echo of that Bradbury story. Bradbury was a heck of a short story writer. I've occasionally taught his, uh, his short fiction in my creative writing classes. I'm sure part of me, when I first started reading, when I was in my, probably in my latter teens, I was thinking, oh, Bradbury's not hard enough SF. But I got to admit, that's, that's where I begin. I read Bradbury early on. My other standard question is the desert island question. If you were to be stranded on a desert island and you were only allowed to have one piece of Bradbury with you, what would you choose? Just one? For me, I probably have to go with a work that is a thematically based collection of his stories. If I couldn't take anything else, I'd take Martian Chronicles or October Country because they evoke these worlds that I can return to again and again, and because there are a lot of stories, that's a lot of stuff to go back to if you're living on a desert island. But it, that's a tough question. It's a really tough question, because from a science fictional point of view, I would say Fahrenheit 451 is his most science fictional story. But I would probably, if I were on a desert island, I would probably go with either October Country or Martian Chronicles. Good choices, good choices. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I've had a lot of people talk about dandelion wine. Yeah, and it, which is wonderful too. But there's something, it's kind of different from Bradbury. There, there's something of the horrific in uh, October Country, as there also is in uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes, that is fascinating to me. And uh, I don't know if it's had that much effect on my own writing, but I really like the material in October Country. And I guess you could talk about the larger collection that it was culled out of, which was Dark Carnival. And Dandelion Wine's got some great stuff, but it, it just, it never scratched at my desire for the horrific as much as October Country did. Speaking more broadly, which other authors have influenced your work, would you say? In the science fiction world, of course, it was summed up by the acronym Bach, Bradbury, Asimov, Clark, and Heinlein. My fascination with Apocalypse and my doctoral dissertation was on apocalyptic elements in English literature. Uh, that owes a lot to Canonical for Leibowitz by Walter M. Miller, Jr. That was a big one for me. As well, Bradbury, Clark, and Heinlein. In terms of fascinating political novels and things that sort of intrigued me from a very young age, Ursula Le Guin, I remember reading uh, Left Hand of Darkness when I was, I think, 12, and later... Uh, reading Dispossessed, and I've read, I, I taught in my, I for many years taught a popular fiction course, and I, I like to sneak in uh, Le Guin into that popular fiction course a lot, Lathe of Heaven, all that, and also some folks uh, who are often seen as kind of second tier now, but that had really affected me, two novels, More Than Human and The Star's My Destination, Bester and Sturgeon. Uh, had a profound effect on my formative years as a writer. Uh, they were very big influences. Outside of science fiction, fantasy, and horror, well, I went and got a doctorate in English literature, so I was reading all over the canon. 
I do have a tendency to really enjoy encyclopedic novels. That was what appealed to me about a writer like Melville. Uh, it's what appealed to me about Joyce, particularly Ulysses. It's what appealed to me about many of the works of Thomas Pynchon. I like those big kitchen sink novels where you just explain the whole universe or as big a piece of it as you can. And they, those had really profound influences on me as a writer. It's interesting. I, I had a very sort of tendentious relationship with those big encyclopedic novels. Uh, you know, for years, I, wouldn't, I just couldn't bring myself to read all the way through uh, Melville's Moby Dick because I was a biology major as an undergraduate, and I thought of myself as a biologically oriented person. And Melville has this section on cetology, on classification of whales, and I'm like, that's not even correct. And I just throw it away. And eventually I had, had to get over that. And one summer, and this was, I think, in my, right before my first year of graduate school, I sat down and read Melville's Moby Dick cover to cover. And I remember coming to the end of it going, oh, this is so great. You know, Melville creates this entire world around the whaling ship Pequod. And when it goes down, it's an apocalypse. He gives you a full-blown apocalyptic fiction right at the end there and it's like wow and i loved it i loved it i love that idea that you could just make that whole world around the pequod and when the whale takes it down it's just amazing it's just fascinating and i had a similar experience with joyce's ulysses initially i was reading it on my own and i got about 80 pages into it and said i can't get into it probably the next year i read about 130 pages of it or, or maybe 170 something like that but threw it against the wall and said ah, i can't read it and then again finally i had some time during the summer and i read that sucker cover to cover and i was just amazed because by doing that whole stream of consciousness effort he takes the premises of what we might call psychological realist fiction to its logical extreme which is surreality the novel becomes brilliantly surreal because it emanates the surreality of our own thought processes. I was in Dublin this last year. And of course, that's for me, that's part of that's got to be a pilgrimage to the Joyce Mecca. Uh, even though he fled that Mecca, he kept writing about it all his life. But I went to the James Joyce Center and went to visit the statues of Joyce and all those sorts of things. Didn't make it to Sandy Mount uh, next time. But I was fascinated by his work. And in a weird way, I'd already been primed for experimental fiction of a weird and fascinating sort because I had read a science fiction novel called The Star is My Destination, Alfred Bester. And I know he's riffing on account of Monte Cristo, but he has these wonderful experimental elements to that novel. I haven't read that novel again in years, and I need to, but it just blew my head off right there. I had so much fun reading that. And in a way, that prepared me for reading Joyce, uh, for reading other encyclopedic novels, people like Joyce and Pynchon. The first science fiction story I ever read, I remember it very well, got it at the library. It was a first novel length piece I read, a YA novel by Alan E. Nurse called Raiders from the Rings. And I read that sucker and I went, and it just locked that key right into the lock on suspension of disbelief. And I went, wow, this is great. And then I just read every science fiction book in the library and, you know, went through the golden age of science fiction, which some claim is 13, uh, and just 
had a wonderful time with it. Science fiction made me a reader. But after going through all the literary canon stuff and all that, when I came back to write myself, I came back as a science fiction writer because that whole journey just took me back. What was it? What's the phrase from Elliot? Return home and recognize it for the first time. And for me, that's what it was. That made that big, big loop. And uh, after all that traveling, it brought me back to working in science fiction. That was where I started as a reader. And that's where I've worked as a writer primarily. But you studied biology um, mm-hmm. for your first degree. Yeah. So w- was that a, a detour? No, it, it, part of it, Phil, really comes from the fact that I had two really wonderful teachers when I was in high school. One of them was a biology teacher. One of them was an English teacher. Okay, And I, and I was already a reader. I was primed for that. And I, I was fascinated by the natural world as a kid. But, and I do look back at the fact that I was a that I did switch from biology to English. Oddly enough, that's one of the reasons I write science fiction is just looking for how those things mesh. I, I switched because at some level, I was born too late. I was born to be a 19th century naturalist. I wanted to be a cataloger, a categorizer, an illustrator, a describer. And I thought, well, I'll be an ecologist. Unfortunately, where I did my undergraduate work, where and when I did my undergraduate work, the only ecology class we had was population ecology. And when I took the course, it was a whole lot of number crunching. And I thought, this isn't my strong suit. And so I didn't follow on with it. And science fiction really appealed to both my literary and my scientific interests. And that's where I ended, how I ended up doing what I was doing. I sometimes wonder if I had gone to a university that had more offerings in ecology or if it had had an anthropology program, anthropology would have been an interesting one for me because it would have appealed to both that, that literary cultural aspect and the scientific aspect. But there was no anthropology program where I did my undergraduate work. And so I, I just ended up loving works by anthropologists like Chad Oliver, Ursula Le Guin by extension, since she was daughter of uh, Alfred Kroeber and it very, has very strongly anthropologically based tinge to her science fiction. I think that that's part of what keeps me fascinated by it, is that I like to see how the so-called hard SF shades into sociological SF. And that's been part of the appeal of writing science fiction for me. And you've spoken about your teaching and a bit about some of the stories that you use. Are there any other Bradbury works that you use in yeah. your teaching? Yeah, um, as I said last year, I taught the Velt, uh, loved it, which I was very happy to find in our Norton American Literature Anthology. I've often taught Fahrenheit 451 uh, in book form for my intro to liter- literature classes and in both book and graphic novel form for my composition classes. Um, I've also used his stories, particularly the Velt, in some of my creative writing classes. I, I taught for 40 years. I taught my first class when I was not quite 21. I had finished the requirements for a degree in English literature, but I was still on campus to finish up my biology degree. The chair of the English department stopped me in the hall one day. And Dr. Ernest Fontana, fascinating guy, wild curly hair, goatee. He always had a pipe, a cigar, or a cigarette. He stopped me in the hall. He said, "Uh, Howard, one of our part-timers, her husband's been transferred to Texas. And I was wondering if you could teach a class for us. 
and I'm very rarely at a loss for words, but I was at a loss for words. And I said, well, well, thanks, Dr. Fontana, but I've never taught a class in my life. And he was smoking a cigar that day. He took a puff on a cigar and he said, that's okay, Howard. I've seen you in class. You're full of bullshit. You'll do fine. And that was how I got my first teaching job. And I was full of bullshit and I did fine. And he just threw me in and I discovered that I really enjoyed teaching. And I stayed at it for a long time. Outside of the classroom, sort of broader teaching in the world, I was organizer and MC of a Big Read 2010 event. In 2010, when Dana Joya was head of the National Endowment for the Arts, the Big Read, the, the thing we were all supposed to be reading all over the country, was Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. And I was called upon to do a, a public symposium on that. And I called that symposium Ray Bradbury, Poet of the American Dream Time, because he is a poet. He, he wrote a lot of not only poetic materials in his stories, but he was an outright poet. He wrote poetry a lot. He had that strong lyrical emphasis. I had a lot of good people uh, show up for that. On the program were folks like Greg Bear and Terry Bisson and William F. Nolan, the graphic novelist Timothy Hamilton, who did uh, the, a graphic novel version of Fahrenheit 451, Bradbury biographer Sam Weller, uh, and Ray himself. This was in 2010. He was too frail at the time to travel to my campus, even though I'm in California too, but we had him live via interactive telecast from CSULA, California State University of Los Angeles. As you know, I was also lead editor of the book Visions of Mars, which came out of the Chronicling Mars Conference in 2008 at UC Riverside. And, and there were a bunch of interesting folks involved in that too, including yourself. So all of that went on. So yeah, I, I sort of, within my classroom, I've taught uh, a number of Bradbury works, but I've also sort of in the larger community presented on Bradbury and, and tried to make him, his work more accessible to a general populace. And and now we're in the centenary year or centennial year uh, of Bradbury. It's 100 years since he was born, eight years since he died. What do you think his legacy will turn out to be? Uh, even during his life, for a full 60 years, if you put the dates at publication of Martian Chronicles in 1950 and say up to about 2010 or thereabouts, for more than 60 years, he was an important cultural and literary figure in the United States. That's why he was the focus of the big read back in 2010. When I was growing up, it was Bach, uh, Bradbury, Asimov, Clark, and Heinlein. And it, I don't think it's an accident that his name is the first in that acronym. Uh, he's profoundly important. His influence extended beyond science fiction, fantasy, and horror. I think as long as lyricism and a wild imagination are appreciated, Bradbury won't lack for readers, and he'll continue to be a culturally important figure. People are still reading them. It's become a sort of rite of passage, at least in the U.S. You've got to read Bradbury, usually at some point in your teens. You just have to. There's no way around it. And I think he will remain a culturally important figure. He's been gone eight years, but and there's still so much work indebted to Bradbury and so much work about Bradbury that's coming out. Finally, Howard, if listeners would like to find out more about your work, where's a good place for them to look? I'd say start with my most recent collection of shorter fiction, The Girls with Kaleidoscope Eyes, Analog Stories for a Digital Age. They can find that via 
fairwoodpress.com. It came out in 2019. My first four novels came out from Ace Books, and they've since been reprinted by other publishers. Those novels are called Light Paths, Standing Wave, Better Angels, Empty Cities of the Full Moon. And those came out between 1997 and 2001. And I had two novels come out from Del Rey between 2002-2007, The Labyrinth Key and Spears of God. Those have also been republished. So that's all been floating around. And, and hopefully by the end of this year, I will finally finish what I've been talking about for years, working on his next novel. I ought to have a next novel called His Next Novel because I'm finally you know, retired from uh, teaching. But I've always had this tension between wanting to write full-time and wanting to, to teach full-time for a brief time during the late 90s, I was able to pretty much write full-time, and that was wonderful. But it gets really lonely and weird after a while, uh, and it was nice to have the feedback from the classroom, too. So I've sort of uh, had my foot in two worlds, writing science fiction and teaching English for a lot of years. And now I have to get back to writing novels because I pulled the plug and I retired. So there I am. I figured I'd, I've got to keep doing it because uh, you can only get water from the well so many times before you break the pot. So I'm just trying to get it, get some work done with it. So there you go, Phil. That's great. Thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. My pleasure, Phil. My thanks to Howard V. Hendricks for joining me today. There will be show notes on my website, which is bradburymedia.co.uk, and in there I'll put links to Howard's books. And that, I'm sorry to say, brings us to the end of the regular episodes of Bradbury 100. Over the past weeks we've looked at Bradbury from many different angles and met plenty of people who have worked with Ray, been inspired by him, or who have been working to keep his legacy alive. This podcast has been my small contribution to this, and I'll make sure the episodes stay out there for some time. Please keep yourself subscribed to the podcast, because I may be back with some one-off episodes as Ray Bradbury's centenary year continues. In the meantime, I hope you've enjoyed it, and if you have, I would appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found this podcast. Many thanks for listening. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols in collaboration with the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe using your podcast app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And you can find us on YouTube and Facebook too. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk. Don't forget to check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, at 101sf.blogspot.com 
and head over to YouTube to find my Bradbury 101 series, in which I look at Ray's books and movies.